The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investmart.com.au. Welcome to Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Nathan Bell, Senior Portfolio Manager of the Growth and Income Funds here at the Investmart and Intelligent Investor. And as always, I'm joined by Alex Hughes, our Small Cap Portfolio Manager. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nath. I swear this room gets more intimate every week. If only people could see us sitting here in the, the shadows with one nice light. I'm glad you're not wearing your skin-tight lycra this week. <laughs> it's a positive change. <laughs> We've got a heap of questions this week, so let's crack on. The first one is, uh, and I should thank Mark in advance, who's an investor with us and it always keeps me honest. Does the recent announcement of Macquarie entering the telco space make any difference to the ACCC view on the TPG-Vodafone merger? Yeah, I mean, so the ACCC is assessing the competitive dynamics, and so I think they would have to consider if a new competitor enters the space. Um, I mean, it's, it's unclear when that'll happen, in what form, how long it'll take. So it's probably a small factor for them. Um, I imagine that they're assessing the current competitive landscape at the moment in terms of whether they're going to allow um, the TPG merger. Um, but I think you have to consider current and future competitors. So I think it will be a wait, but probably small. I think the regulators see this a bit different to me because my feeling is that you've got a dominant provider in Telstra, the clear winner in the mobile space. Uh, it's a big business, it's a profitable business and it's very hard to compete with. But the problem is when you let uh, an industry go from four down to three or three down to two, all of a sudden we've seen time and time again that the returns of those companies just get much better Mm. because the pricing improves, which is another way of saying that the customer is paying more. But the problem to me is that I think every business is entitled to earn a fair return on its assets, and sometimes that might mean the consumer paying more and I don't think we necessarily get paid, we pay that much for telecommunications. I mean, you can buy a really cheap phone these days uh, through Kogan. I mean, my son's phone is only, I think, uh, $100 or $200 a year. Mm. And he gets heaps of calls. I think it's like 10 gig of data. So, uh, but they keep looking at this and say if they take a competitor out, essentially, with the combination of TPG and Vodafone, all of a sudden everyone's going to be paying more. And I just don't think that's fair on TPG and Vodafone. And if the returns in the industry all of a sudden become too high, then I would have thought these days with the technological barriers coming down, more competitors would come in and reduce their prices anyway. Yeah, I guess with the MVNOs that enter the space, people like Amazon and you mentioned Kogan and and things where they use the existing network, but they um, sell products over the top and, you know, operate a marketing enterprise and um, essentially compete on price for the most part. So that brings more brands into the space and I guess an air of competition but yeah it's interesting Australia seems to be the land of the duopoly and (laughs) even um, a fellow by the name of Jonathan Tepper wrote a book The Myth of Capitalism about how this trend is also playing out in the US and how industries are consolidating and returns are improving as a result so I wonder whether um, the people like the ACCC are going to be um, keeping a closer eye on, on such things because you know these companies are, are using this to really build their returns. So great for shareholders, but it's probably something that they're going to keep an eye on. Okay, I've been watching Swift Media since Alan Kohler interviewed them back a while ago. They have found a unique unique way to target high high revenue streams in the media space and have been producing steady and reasonable returns. However, their share price keeps falling. It's is there something going on behind the scenes, or is this because or is this becoming a buying opportunity? I do note that their CEO is stepping aside. Uh, cheers, Jamie. 
And also along the same lines, could you give me an insight into why Swift Meter's share price continues to fall despite upbeat commentary and, and announcements and a string of contract wins? Cheers, John. Yeah, so the CEO left and also the chairman in, in quite quick succession. So I think that's probably the main concern. It's never comforting to see, you know, the two most important figures in a business leave um, in a close period of time. Unless you know, it's NAB. Unless it's NAB, <laughs> that's right, unless they're doing really bad things and they need to be replaced. But, you know, I mean, sales momentum slows down. You don't have um, people that know the business well making the right decisions. So it gives competitors an opportunity to fill the void. Um, there's also always that fear that they know something about the current operations or the future potential of the business and they're leaving because of that. Um, so that tends to spook investors at times and I think that's what's happened here. Um, in terms of the business itself, it's not one that's really on my radar. I, I struggle to see how it fits into the world. You know, you've got lots of media platforms out there and they seem to provide content and to me it seems like they're trying to use sort of niche markets in order to have a presence. You know, the big players, you know, like the Netflixes and co have tremendous buying power in terms of their content and they target the mass markets and Swift seems to be obviously a much smaller player, but they seem to be targeting the specific niches like the medical space and mining and things like that. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure how this business fits in the world and what its future returns look like. But um, So it's not really one on my radar, but yeah, those I think those man management changes are um, certainly something to keep an eye on. I'm not familiar with Swift, but I just noticed uh, increased competition was getting blamed for Google's, uh, I guess, softer results recently. And uh, I'm noticing a lot of... Uh, smaller companies that are just finding niches in the online advertising industry. So it's a really fast-moving space, and I just find it very difficult because the business models are so new. Mm. Uh, but I think if you can do a bit of work on some of these names, if you really think there's something in them, and if, if we ever, if the central banks ever let us have a downturn again, <laughs> um, that might be the time to buy into some of them. Yeah, it, it does seem like there is some real demand for an alternative to Facebook and Google because it feels like they're the only game in town from an advertiser's perspective, and you know, they're in such a position to extract so much value from that. And I mean, it seems unclear to me what sort of return advertisers get on, on those on those ads that they use through Google and Facebook. So when they can have an alternative channel, maybe get better prices, maybe get better outcomes, I think that type of business could do quite well. But um, I'm not sure if that's Swift, um, it's probably someone else. So another question from Mark, how are you thinking about Flight Center following the recent downgrade? How much of its revenue comes from Australian leisure travel? And do you believe in the theory that downgrades are like cockroaches and never come in ones? So I'll just cover uh, the leisure travel business first, which is where the pain is in the business at the moment. It's around 40% uh, uh, of revenue. And it is a fair, it's a tough business and it has been for a long time because travel costs just keep coming down and down. So it's not a space that you would think there's a big future in necessarily providing increased margins and bigger profits. And Screw Turner, the CEO and founder, has known this for a long time. And I think we're probably about 10 years in now where the company's been trying to transition away from the Australian leisure business. Interestingly, if you have a look at the other countries that Flight Centre is in, Australia is the only one that has the majority of the revenue coming from leisure. All the other countries have it coming from corporate travel, uh, particularly small and medium-sized businesses. And that's the big opportunity for Flight Centre at the moment, which is why I'm not particularly perturbed about the downgrade. The downgrade's actually a combination of a bit slower spending, uh, which we're just seeing in the, in the general softness in the economy. But also, there's uh, screws put in a number of changes through there, trying to get the cost down, changing the incentive structures, there's new software going in. So all these changes have, have, 
happened at the same time and it's unfortunate timing and I think there's a lot of questions out there at the moment. Is it really internally, is it uh, internal changes that's causing the problems or is it actually the, the softness in the leisure travel business is a more permanent thing, there's increased competition, the margins should continue to fall over time, uh, which I actually probably think they, they should do and that makes perfect sense to me. But the big opportunity for Flight Centre, and I think it can be much, much bigger, and that they've even said that, the opportunity for small and medium-sized uh, businesses to do their corporate travel, which is much higher margin business, and is an enormous growth opportunity in the US. It should be way, way bigger than anything they do in Australia over the next 10 years, and that's the reason uh, I've got the stock in the, the growth and income portfolios. I always find it interesting when companies um, speak to internal changes as being the issue behind softness in their business. I mean, companies are always changing their operations. They're always using new products, installing new software, you know, restructuring operations and having different people involved. And they, they never talk about that when times are good, but when times are bad, they, they say that it is responsible for everything. So I wonder whether Flight Centre's down, um, downplaying the disruption going on, the, the shift to online services instead of, you know, physical travel agents. I wonder whether that's that's a bigger factor. Um, Webjet will be interesting to watch. Um, their their share price has been reasonably resilient, um, but when they come out and talk about their results and particularly their Australian um, B two C results, it'll be interesting to see their comments. See whether they've, they've seen a benefit from this or whether they're also experiencing softness um, due to um, the Australian. Softness and consumer, and, and so on. Yeah, I'm probably mm. somewhat biased in giving Screwtune the benefit of the doubt. There's no doubt uh, about that. Uh, but I believe uh, Sydney Airport, recently is one of our holdings as well, is uh, produced the first quarter of negative traffic. Um, mm. I don't know if it was ever, but in a long time. Um, so that would actually, uh, when we see Webjet's results, you'd expect those things to tie together. Yep. Um, but we'll see. The other part of that question was uh, about the cockroaches in the kitchen theory about profit downgrades. And I wrote about this in the Jan uh, January's monthly report. Uh, and I'll just quote, Stockopedia analysed 245 downgrades of small UK stocks between January 2013 and August 2016. So bear in mind there, that's a fairly small sample size. And uh, in a period where I actually thought everybody should be upgrading, not downgrading, as the cycle was getting better. And the results were mostly consistent with our experience, including that share prices on average fell 6% before a downgrade was reported. Just 13% had a higher share price after 12 months. 31% had a 5% higher share price. And 45%, or nearly half of those stocks that reported a profit downgrade, had at least a 10% lower share price after one year. In contrast to the cockroaches in the kitchen theory, where if you spot one, then there's bound to be more, 64% of companies only reported one profit downgrade. A quarter of companies reported two, while 5% delivered three and 6% delivered four. Now, people who are invested in, in the funds I look after will remember I sold James Hardy because I thought I'd uh, overestimated the profit margins and the share price did fall lower than uh, when I sold and so there was an opportunity to buy it a bit lower. At the time, I was finding other things to buy so I hadn't bought it back and then the CEO changed over and the first thing he announced was $150 million in cost savings, mm -hmm. which basically put my original margins um, sort of back to being accurate and the share price has recovered to um, a bit above what I paid. I still like James Hardy and I do want to own it at some, would like to own it at some point, but it was interesting. So the point there was that usually for the good companies, the profit downgrade is only once, but I just think you've got to take that with a grain of salt because of that period, 2013 to 2016, 
was a really good economic recovery period for most countries, particularly in, in the UK, where the, they effectively had a housing depression uh, for their economy. So, um, but what it says is normally only one um, gets the worst of it out. And I think if you start to see two and three, then clearly management's lost control. But by the time you see two and three, my guess is the share price is already down 50%. Mm -hmm. Yep. So the benefit of the doubt uh, is with Screw Turner uh, for mine at the moment. But, but looking for the next five or 10 years in that corporate travel business. Hi guys, keep up the good work. Do you have an opinion on Electro Optical Systems, uh, ASX ticker EOS? I bought in today, trading on a reasonable PE with lots of growth potential, profit forecast to be 30% up on 2018. I actually read, um, went through the slides and I think they actually said the profit was going to double this year. Uh, with current agreed contracts and also lucrative tenders submitted for future growth over the next few years for the defensive division. I'm not sure I think that means defense division. Uh, the space division is the interesting part of the company with enormous potential, which is expected to be profitable for 2020. Directors are buying, technically looking good to me. Cheers, Andrew. This company cracks me up. It <laughs> sells space lasers. It always makes me laugh. Um, I think with this company, the first hurdle you always have to climb is the ethical hurdle. You know, this company will succeed if it helps um, military users be more effective at killing people, <laughs> essentially. So that's that's a really difficult thing. Um, to confront. For me, I, I, I'm unwilling to invest in it based on that because you know, I don't want to make money helping those things happen. Um, but some investors are and I, I don't judge them for that. Um, that's their decision. Um, so if you, if you get over that hurdle, the, the next hurdle for me is the fact that it's really difficult to discern as an independent investor the, the future outlook for this business because I've heard all the bill cases about this business. You know, It was in Livewire live the other day. And basically all of the... Um, well, the whole bull case is predicated on this information supplied by management. So they've projected strong revenue and earnings growth out for the next few years. It looks really cheap based on those results. But if your investment case is entirely reliant on what they provide you, um, how are you ever going to know when things change? Um, you know, when they're not on track to meet their targets. You know, it's really difficult to know that yourself. And essentially the only edge you have is sort of getting close to management and finding out that information before other investors. So I guess Insto has an advantage over retail in that case. So for me, most investments, I want to I want to be able to value them and appraise their future myself. Um, and if I'm completely relying on management, then um, I'm less keen on it. But um, based on their targets, it looks like it's growing fast and it looks like it's got a niche in that space. Um, but it's a difficult one for me. Yeah, there was a couple of other good things. I think they got $50 million of cash on the balance sheet and they were suggesting they wouldn't have to raise any more capital. Yeah. Uh, there's a shareholder, I think it's uh, North Group or North Northman, uh, which is a US defence company. There's a 5% shareholder, so that suggests there's something in the company they see that's potentially valuable. Yep. And yeah, it's certainly attractive quantitatively. There's a yeah, lot to be said for that. And the defence industry is one of those uh, defensive industries in an investing sense. <laughs> um, like uh, military expenditure just continues to grow in the US and with everything going on in the world, you basically guaranteed that's going to continue to increase so that's a, a nice tailwind but I, I do uh, on the negative side with a business like this I always pay attention to those order books because those order books can fall very quickly uh, off a cliff once they're done uh, they often take a lot of capital to ramp up uh, if you've got a you know, two billion dollar order book and you haven't got all the production ready to handle that sort of load um, that could be quite costly and, and risky as you start up and often the margins on those uh, big contracts are, are quite low uh, and as I said, they do have an end date. So they'd, they'd be a few of the things that I'd be looking at um, to get a bit more detail. Uh, another one from Mark. 
How are you thinking about the private health insurers with the likely uh, Labor Party policy becoming law, which limits premium increases to 2%? So first, uh, I have my premiums with NIB, so to stop seeing that uh, cost go up 5 to 7% every year would be great, personally. Um, there's uh, so many moving parts to this, and I've thought about having Medibank Private and NIB uh, in the income portfolio. I haven't got them in there yet, but they're in our ethical portfolio, which is about to launch. And they, NIB in particular, has been extremely well run by Mark Fitzgibbon. It's been a tremendous um, story. I, I remember putting a sell on it stupidly at $1.40. Um, it had been up from $0.55. Cents. must have been back in about 2010 or 11. So it's officially been a 12-bagger, I think, if you throw the dividends in. So that was uh, another gaffe by myself, selling too early. But th the thing at the moment is it's, it's a really difficult balance that the government and these companies, these private companies, um, have to try and get right. It's all well and good to say stop putting your premiums up, but it's the increase in costs that we're going to have over the next 20 or 30 years as the people uh, continue to age. I think the statistic is something like the healthcare costs uh, of someone uh, is like 80% uh, of your life costs, health costs are in your last one or two years of life. And it's hard to get rid of something like that. And the problem is for the health insurers, if, they, if, if their revenue is only going up by 2% a year and they've got this huge cost inflation, which is not necessarily from the existing services going up in cost, but just more people using things, to hold profit margins, to hold profit steady, then you've got to start offering less services. And then all of a sudden you get into a death spiral where people don't think they're getting any value out of uh, their premiums as it is. And we're already seeing those falling, I think, simply because of that fact and also the economy slowing. And then you get into a dangerous situation where all those costs then have to go onto the public balance sheet. So it's all well and good for Bill Shorten to come out and make these claims and maybe this happens, but there's going to have to be more going on in the background to make the balance work because it's just not going to work with a blunt 2% fixed uh, increase in premiums. And the other thing I think is actually on NIBs and Medibank Private's side in particular is I do think they're currently very well-managed businesses. Uh, the balance sheets are good and uh, I think this is fairly well known, which is why you've seen the share prices already come off a bit, but they're likely to be the beneficiaries in a takeover situation. Mm. So there's, there's probably, I don't know, half a dozen big players, uh, private health insurers, and so maybe that becomes three over time and that's the way they rip the cost out of the business, maintain their profit margins while they... Um, get stuck with the the small increase in the premiums. Yeah, yeah. I I just add to that uh, just a general comment really that whenever there's a new change like this that is widely discussed for a long period of time, the market's really good at factoring that in. So I don't think you should be really worried about these changes at this point because the market's already baked that in for the most part. So I guess it's about I, I think what you've identified, Nate, is really interesting. You know, if you've got regulated um, premium increases, but then market-based costs, you know, there's the potential for for margins to be hurt because they can't control them and balance them appropriately. Um, so that would be a key thing to focus on over the long term. Um, but in terms of the the initial changes and, and how that's priced now, I think that's largely factored in. So uh, both both companies exceptionally well managed and have handled the costs recently really well. Uh, NIB had a nice little snippet in the presentation they did uh, yesterday and there's an equalisation policy that these companies have to bear with and that's basically if you're Medibank you're a beneficiary of this policy because you've got a lot older people so a lot more costly people that you look after. NIB tends to have much younger people as, as customers and so they're always having to pay money into this equalisation fund just to make it a bit fairer 
And what uh, Mark Fitzgibbon was saying is that we don't want equalisation based on purely age. We want it done on risk. So the riskiness or, of high cost for the individuals. Uh, and that seemed to be uh, an interesting point. I don't know whether you have any success with that, but that would, uh, you could see why certainly as the CEO of NIB, he's pushing for that. <laughs> Hi, Nathan. Alex, a big fan of InvestMart's second best podcast. You can really say that. A question about Ordinate. <laughs> Assuming the majority of the switch from analogue to digital is complete by, say, 2025, what's your estimate of the annual replacement market and new sales growth to be, for example? The current total addressable market for the audio component market is estimated to be $400 million. The product replacement cycle is, say, 10 years. Therefore, the yearly revenue potential is a st in a static market would be $40 million plus growth rate. Thanks, Jackson. No, no, it's, that's not quite right. Um, so every year there's billions of dollars of AV equipment that is sold um, from hundreds, if not thousands, of manufacturers. Um, and Ordinate's total addressable market is estimated based on an assumption on the number of um, units that could be put into that audio equipment base and then a unit price multiplied um, by that. Um, and so that gives that $400 million figure. So that's an annual figure. Um, I'd imagine that all of the audiovisual sales that occur each year, I'd imagine that the replacement component is quite large. Um, I'm not sure the proportions, um, but I don't think that really matters at this point, um, simply because we're so early in Ordinate's journey. So they're going to have structural growth and that will drive their revenue growth in the near term. Now, maybe when they're uh, much bigger and they represent, you know, let, let's assume that all of the audiovisual equipment has adopted digital systems, Ordinate has lots, say, Ordinate has $400 million re of revenue as a result, um, then the cyclicality of of the industry will be much more important at that point because, you know, th these are products that can be deferred, you know, in tough economic times, people might say, hey, I'm not going to build a new entertainment centre, I'm going to wait for a few more years. So when ordinates mature, the cyclicality will be much more important. But right now, I don't think it really matters. Um, but the important point here is that the, the annual market for their chips is around $400 million today. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really big opportunity there and then, then they've got the software layers on top. Yeah, so I think the point there is we've got a, quite a few years to wait before it becomes an issue. Yeah, which is and, good thing. and it would be great if it was fully adopted by 2025. <laughs> Ordinate is very cheap if that's, if that's the case. So last one from Mark. What is happening with bank funding costs? My read is that they are falling. A cut to interest rates also likely to help margins. Does this alter your view of the banks? So interest rates have basically just collapsed around the world, which is a good thing for if you're borrowing money and, and banks, uh, the Australian banks do have to borrow a lot of money overseas uh, to keep up with loan demand in Australia. We can't satisfy uh, that demand on capital uh, on our own. And so the fact that it seems that their funding costs are falling a little bit and that no one's really expecting them to pass this on through cheaper loans, then in that, that um, says that mar that's good for margins. The thing for me, though, is I just think that's a fairly minor point compared to some of the big issues facing the banks. Margins on the whole is absolutely um, probably second uh, on my list of importance. And we've seen the profit margins for our banks over the last 10 years. I think they're more than half now from, uh, I think they used to be around 4 4.5%, and, and now they're down around uh, 2%. And the reason those the banks have remained so profitable is just the sheer volume of loans they've been processing in a... Uh, in essentially what, uh, let's call it a housing bubble for sake of argument, um, or a credit bubble. And I think this is more important for margins in future is if your loan growth slows down and it's slow, slowed down dramatically, particularly as no one wants to borrow money for investments at the moment, 
then that's going to hurt your margins as well because this really is a volume business. So, um, so has anything changed my view on the banks? I don't think they're especially cheap. If I look at uh, global comparisons, uh, a bank like ING in the Netherlands, it's a great bank, it's clean, it pays a 5.5% dividend yield, it trades um, around book value at the moment or maybe less, and it's aiming to do return on equity of 10 to 12%, which is pretty consistent with three banks outside, three uh, big banks outside of Commonwealth. And if I had to choose one or the other, um, I find it hard to go against ING just because it's already been through a property downturn, a very serious one, and come out the other side, whereas the Aussie banks haven't done that. That said, in the income portfolio I look after, we have to deliver a certain yield and I'm comfortable having CBA and Westpac in there and I th think that's proving to be the right decision from basically day dot when I worked at Intelligent Investor 10 years ago. My theory was always stick with Westpac and Commonwealth, which are the biggest, and they haven't gone overseas and blown up money over there. And Macquarie, uh, if you want another bank as well, and just leave ANZ and NAB, even though they're the cheapest, and leave the regionals alone. And I think the bad news that's been filtering through at the moment has justified that decision, and I'm not willing to change that. And I'm not someone who would uh, recommend necessarily, uh, and I think most people are in this situation, most individuals, they've got these huge capital gains liabilities if they sell the stock, and I just don't think it's worth selling CBA, for example, paying this huge wad of tax, then to buy the slightly cheaper ANZ and NAB, when I just think those companies are the ones that are clearly having more problems than Westpac and uh, arguably Westpac, but CBA certainly isn't having those same problems. Yeah. I'd much rather own the best, potentially going into a downturn than, than the worst or second best. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, in terms of the capital gains tax liability, I think your time horizon is really important. So, you know, if you have another 20 years to invest, then I think owning the best banks is the right decision and you can look through the cycle that we're about to go through um, and you, you can probably see a decent result over the long term by doing so. Um, but in saying that, it, in addition to the low credit growth that we're seeing at the banks, there's also the rising bad and doubtful debts, and ANZ came out yesterday, and, and there was a bunch of interesting information there. So about 5% of their loan book is now in negative equity. Yeah, I thought that was staggering. That is staggering. And, it, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see the other banks because – Westpac and CBA do have the biggest loan book portfolios and it, it will be really interesting to see everyone's underwriting because, you know, generally banks are quite, or well, the Australian banks are quite similar in terms of their geographic exposures and things. So we're about to find out who has been the most sensible with their lending. Um, but it's an interesting time for banks, I think, with the economy where it's at, with the, the rate of credit growth declining as it has. I think there's future or well, house price falls are baked in for at least the next year. And it's really difficult underwriting loans when the collateral is reducing. So it's a really, really tricky time for the Australian economy. And I think investors need to think really carefully about that. All right, mate, we're going to give you uh, the last comment of the day. You want to talk about placebos, and particularly as far as it relates to A2 milk and Blackmores. <laughs> yeah, so this week um, I've been drinking A2 milk, um, just for a bit of fun, but also... Not baby infant formula? <laughs> no, no, not yet. Um, yeah, so just to get to know the business really, and just to try and understand it from a consumer's perspective. So um, it's not something I've drunk before, um, and it's actually been really interesting. So the first thing that stood out to me was the price. Um, so it's about $5 for a two litre for A2 milk. Um, so obviously it's much higher than um, regular brands. Um, Wait till you have kids. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and also the labelling as well. So there's no mention of any scientific benefit on the labelling. Um, what they push is, or their tagline is, feel the difference. And so, I mean, they don't have any scientific evidence um, for the efficacy of their products. Um, so it's all just encouraging the consumer to think about and, and, and think about how they feel. And it's a really sort of personal, subjective message. Um, the, the price thing is interesting, though, because... High prices are a strong signal consumer, to consumers, and we, we do see that work across a number of other products. If you think of wine or whiskey, say, you know, when you drink a $200 bottle of whiskey, um, hopefully not in one go, um, <laughs> but you think about the product differently. You Instead of just lugging it down, you probably spend more care and, and you're more conscious with how it tastes and feels. And I, I've noticed in myself, I've, I've been doing that with A2, drinking $5 milk. And so... You start to think, you know, does this taste better? And, and you're more conscious instead of just sipping it down. And and that, for me, I've, I've even seen it in myself that that starts to ignite the placebo effect. And it's a funny one because there's so much stigma stigma about the placebo effect for investors. You know, you see Blackmores or A2 get criticised because there's no scientific proof about the benefit. And value investors say, well, therefore the products are useless and the businesses are going to have a poor future. But I actually wonder whether it's it's actually better, um, partly because, you know, just on the economic side, you know, they don't have to spend a lot on R&D to go through all the rigorous testing and, and, and proving that the products actually work, you know, they're marketing-based businesses. But for consumers, if they actually feel better about the product, um, that's probably the most important thing. You know, there's thousands of people that use A2 products in China in, in Australia and the, and the US and if, if they feel like they get some benefit even though it might come from the fact that you know they're in a health conscious space and they might eat better and exercise more and that the actual benefits they feel might come from something completely other than the product itself but if they associate that with the product um, then there's potentially a great business there for someone so I, I, yeah I've just been trying to rethink the whole placebo effect and Instead of it having so much stigma, I wonder whether it's actually just something that investors should look for and it's actually a really valuable source of of, of alpha and, and high returns for businesses. I think that's a fantastic discussion and there's more and more work being research coming out about the placebo effect and everything I've read, which is not a huge amount, always says that it's very real. Uh, so this is something very tangible for businesses to rely on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because... We tend to want things which have scientific merit, um, you know, things that alter our internal chemistry and we can point to a specific thing that it's changing. But if, if a product does actually make you feel better, even if it's purely occurring in your mind and you get some, some benefit from that, even if we can't put our fingers on where that comes from, then that, that is good for you. You're not taking a product which could can cause harm. So, yeah, I wonder whether this is... It's something that I want to think about more because I think there could be more to it. And particularly for a low cost, right? Like it's a very small proportion of your income to be spending an extra one or two dollars on two litres of milk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so yeah, these businesses are on my radar for sure. I know. I'm sure A2 Milk uh, is counting on uh, your future progeny uh, for, <laughs> to buy some cans of infant formula as well. Uh, thanks, Alex, as always. If you want to send us any questions, send it into skin in the game, all one word, at investmart.com.au from us next week. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the income, growth and small companies funds, head over to investmart.com.au. 
relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at investmart.com.au.